0: Thank you, Ryan, and good morning again to everybody. How are y'all? Very good. Uh, It's very exciting to me to be uh, worshiping with you here, Uh, many of you here for the first time. Glad you're here with us. Uh, It's also great to be starting a new church during this time of the year, during Christmas. We get to think about one of the highest themes throughout the whole Bible, one of the, the, the climaxes of the whole Bible story that God himself became a human being to rescue people like you and me. And so over the next uh, several weeks uh, here in December, we're going to be looking at the songs in the first two chapters of a book called Luke in the New Testament. Uh, Luke was one of those who wrote down, four different people wrote down the story of Jesus' life in in the New Testament. And Luke, of all of them, spends the most time on the birth of Christ. So that's why we're turning to him. and, And he gives us four songs right at the beginning of the book that are sang or spoken from the heart. By four different characters or groups of characters that were eyewitnesses to the birth of Christ. And each of these songs gets down below. It gets down underneath not just what happened on Christmas and how it happened, but these songs, like the one we just read, gets to why it happened. What's the meaning of the Christmas story? What's the, the value for the Christmas story that Jesus was born in Bethlehem all those years ago? What's the value of that for us here today? What's for the value in our lives? How can it transform us and change us? Uh, I love this song that was just read. This is by Mary herself, the mother of Jesus. Uh, I think we could all agree, knowing the Christmas story, that nobody else had a more front row seat to the birth of Jesus than Mary. Is that right? (laughs) She was right there. And uh, it it was a very intimate experience for her. It affected her life greatly. And this song was saying just a little bit after, just days after, she heard from an angel, you're going to have a son. And that son's not just going to be any son, that's going to be the son of the most high God. Are you ready to accept this assignment, Mary? And Mary does this thing that's amazing. She shows what all true believers in their hearts are like when she says, let it be to me, Lord. Let it be to me according to her word. But I think we would be a little bit off base if we thought Mary had no fear. (laughs) If we thought Mary had no worries or no doubts. I mean, after all, she's... Unwed, she's young. She's just found out she's pregnant. And the only story she has is an angel told me. That's not going to go over very well. Especially back in a culture where that kind of thing just wasn't really acceptable in any way, shape, or form. And yet Mary sings this song. And I want you to notice that in the song is not worry. It's not fear. It's not doubt. In the song, she focuses on Joy. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her King. Something about the birth of Jesus is a a doorway to us, to you and to me, to true and lasting joy. Notice what she says at the beginning there in verses 46 and 47. She says, My soul magnifies the Lord. My soul makes much of God and what He's about to do. And so my spirit rejoices or has deep joy in God, my Savior. I think right there, what she says helps you and I today think about real joy? Because I think today, maybe you'll agree with me, I think we have a joy problem in our culture and society. I think we have a joy problem maybe even personally in our own hearts. What do I mean by that? I mean everybody wants joy. In some way, joy and happiness are what everybody is pursuing and seeking every day of their lives, but but so few of us seem to find it in a deep and lasting way. And so few of us, even when we do find it in short little snippets, so, so few of us seem to be able to hang on to it forever. And yet the Bible says here that joy is possible in God. And Mary tells us a little bit, I think, of what our problem specifically is with joy. Why is it we can't hang on to it? Why is it we can't find it? I think because you and I believe that joy comes from making much of ourselves. And Mary is telling us, the birth of Jesus Christ tells us true joy in this, in this life and the next comes from making much of God and what he has to do. That's what it means there by magnifying the Lord, making much of him. And yet the, the story in our culture is if you want to be happy, if you want to have joy, you got to look out for number one. You have to take care of yourself. You have to express yourself. You have to go rely on yourself. Nobody else is going to do it for you. And Mary is saying no. It's kind of the, the irony of ironies. I wasn't looking for joy, and that's when I found it. (laughs) Not when I was seeking it by my own power and strength, but when God surprised me with joy. Because that's what grace is. That's what the story of Jesus is. The grace of God surprising us with God's gift of joy. And so there are three things this morning I want us to to observe from Mary's song. And you can find them there in your worship bulletin. Uh, The first one is that Jesus' birth is a work of God's grace. It shows us grace. The second thing is that God's grace leaves no room for our pride. And so thirdly, the grace of God opens the door in our lives to true and lasting joy. Let's talk about those. First, uh, the birth of Jesus Christ is an expression, a miracle of God's grace alone. Now, what is grace? Grace is a, a word that's thrown around a lot, isn't it? Everybody talks about grace. Is it just a prayer you pray before you eat your dinner? Is that grace? Uh, Often we think grace is uh, just God sort of sweeping under the rug the bad things that we've done. As if God can look the other way and and go on and pretend like it never happened. But Mary actually is setting this song up. She's she's helping us understand that through the birth of her son, who is also God himself, become a human being, that what you have is a, a grace that's far more costly than anything we ever thought of before. It's far more costly to God to give to us than we ever thought before, and it's absolutely, positively undeserved. It's God's surprising and undeserved favor given to us. Look at what Mary says there in verse 48. She says, for, this is why I rejoice in God, she says, for because he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. And for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. That's an expression, I don't know if you noticed it, but it's an expression of what grace is. God looking upon his servant when they were in their most humble state, the most humble place they could possibly be. Uh, The word she uses there for look on is more than just sort of riding down the road and, oh, I glanced at it and I I just happened to see it out of the corner of my eye. I, I looked at it. This is a word used very rarely in the Bible. It's a word for look that means I studied it. I looked into it. I in fact one passage says I showed favoritism to it. When Mary says God looked on me, it's God showed me favor. God showed me favor not just when I was at my strongest, she said. God showed me favor not when I my life was screaming, "Hey God, you want me on your team. I've got a lot to offer." Instead, she says, God showed me favor when I had nothing to offer God's team, when I was in my humblest estate. And after all, you know, who was Mary? Sort of a no-name girl, living in a no-name town that nobody wanted to go to, called Nazareth, in a no-name country that all the Romans thought was, like, full of hillbillies. <laughs> and there was Mary. No husband, no prospect, no nothing, and God came and looked upon her, He showed her favor, I love another way that uh, Luke talks about this, not in the passage we read, but just a few paragraphs ahead. When the angel comes to Mary, the first thing the angel says is, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Literally, you've found grace. And there again, the word for found, it's where we get the word eureka in English. <laughs> it's like total, Mary was not looking at all for the grace of God. She was going about her daily chores just as usual, thinking that this day would be like any other day before. And suddenly, as if she tripped over it, as if she stumbled over it, there was God's grace for her, given as a free gift. Mary found grace. And Mary says, because she found grace, because God favored her even when she didn't earn it or deserve it, now through her son to be born, anybody, it says there in verse 50, anybody who fears God, who trusts him, who believes him, who takes God at his word, that person also can experience the grace, the, she says, their mercy, the steadfast love of God, God's committed love for his people. And that's what the whole story of the Bible is about. The world that God made was a world that he wanted to be full of people like me and you who are, who are his children receiving his love, enjoying his love, loving him back because he first loved us, loving each other in the same way that we've been loved. That's the way God designed it to be. How far have we gone from that? And yet, even though we went far away, and we went far away by our own design, by our own fault and decision, God still, it says, looked down through time, saw all of his people, and he still loved them. He loved them so much that he was committed that they would somehow stumble over and find Eureka in their life. They would find the treasure of God's grace. I wonder if you've stumbled over that. Have you found the grace of God? Has the grace of God found you? I read last year a story of a, a group of Spanish construction workers uh, over in Spain who were digging a trench to build a building. And as they dug, their shovel hit this pot. And then another pot, another pot. And it ended up being full of rare Roman coins for over 1,000 years old, more up you know, 2,000 years old. 1300 pounds of them they found. Now that's a eureka moment, isn't it? Uh, I mean, in all the ditches I've dug, I've never found that, any kind of treasure. But that, that expresses it, right? I'm sure the joy of those men. They woke up that morning not thinking anything unusual would happen, suddenly, boom. One of the greatest discoveries ever made on the European continent that day. surprised by grace, surprised by treasure. God did that for Mary. God does that for us. But you see, his grace is not only undeserved, it's not only surprising, it's also very, very costly. It's costly in this scene, of course, for Mary. Mary has a cost to bear in this assignment that God has given. But even Mary's cost pales in comparison to what God himself is paying out in this transaction. Because after all, Jesus is God who is leaving the glory of heaven to become a fetus. Have you ever thought of it that way? (laughs) Leaving the glory of angels, crying out all the time, holy is your name, glory is the Lord, to become a fetus, to be born not to a family in a palace, which if it it were me, that's where I would choose to be born, right? He chose to be born to a family who had nothing. He was born in a barn. I mean, did your mom ever ask you, were you born in a barn? (laughs) That was not meant to be a compliment, right? Jesus literally was born in a barn, laid in a feeding trough as his first crib, grew up his whole life suffering and being mistreated. Why in the world would God do that? Why would he go from so high up and so outwardly glorious to to taking on human flesh and concealing, as it were, his glory? Why would he do that? Again, grace. God saw us and he knew that in order to love me and you, it was going to cost a lot. Like someone going to buy a house and it's a fixer-upper. And they get in there and they start looking at all the things that are wrong with it. And they realize the budget has to go up and up and up and up. And sometimes it even gets to where the budget just goes way too high. There's no way we could buy this house. There's no way we could fix it up. Well, God looked and he saw an infinite cost. And the Bible says in Isaiah, one of the Old Testament prophets, God looked around and he said, does any one of the people that I made, any one of them able to pay the cost? And it says he went one by one and just kind of scanned. Now, he already knew that none of them could, but he, for a dramatic effect, he looked across the world. And it said he found no one. And so his own arm performed his salvation or his rescue. And that's what the birth of Jesus is, God paying the cost. You and I don't have access to God naturally. We have not lived the kind of life that deserves access to God. I have not. But Jesus came so that he could live a perfect life so that you and I could get access on the basis of his life. You and I had a guilt so high, like a debt owed to God because of our disobedience, that we could never pay it off. Jesus died on the cross to pay it completely in full, past, present, and future. You and I, uh, we could never change our hearts. See, our lives are so twisted and corrupt and the way we think about God is so suspicious that we could never actually work up enough power to change our lives. And so Jesus became a man in order to rise from the dead so that he could share his miracle-working power with us and actually give us a new heart and a new life. The Bible calls it a second birth. See, it's amazing what God did, the cost that he paid. And I think this helps us understand something very, very critical about Christianity. When we say the gospel or Christianity is about grace... We mean it's not this, which is what commonly it is thought to be. It's not, you need to be a good person. And I'm a good person, and I'm right most of the time, and you're a bad person and wrong, and I can't wait to tell you about it, oh (laughs) non-Christian. And all you need Jesus for is to kind of assist you and help you, guide you along the way to be more like me. Unfortunately, that's the way Christians, we sometimes come across that way. But according to what Mary is saying, according to the miracle of Jesus' birth, it's not that. According to the miracle of Jesus' birth, it's not Jesus the teacher with good advice coming into the world saying, hey, here's what you need to go do. Now the burden's on you. Go and do it, and God will love you. Instead, it's Jesus the rescuer, Jesus the Savior, who's bringing not good advice, good news. That's what gospel means. That word literally means good news, a, a pronouncement that something has already been accomplished, something has already been done that's good enough to bring you all the way back to God. If there's a ladder to heaven, it's not one going up that you have to climb. It's not one going up that you have to you know, shed your blood, sweat, and tears to earn your way up there. If there's a ladder to heaven, it's one God put down so that he could come down. <laughs> And meet us where we are in our lowest, most humble estate, as Mary said, and to carry us up to where He is. The birth of Jesus Christ is all about the grace of God. That's the first thing. But Mary goes on from there, and she's starting to step on some toes as she sings from there. Because the second thing she shows us is that God's grace, like in the birth of Jesus, does not leave any room for your pride and mine. There is no room for pride. There's no such thing in a way of a proud Christian, an arrogant, self-righteous Christian. Now you say, come on, preacher, I've met some. (laughs) You're lying to me. There can be a proud or self-righteous Christian. I didn't say you can't say you're a Christian and be proud and self-righteous and haughty. But I did say you can't really get the good news of grace. You can't really be in on what Jesus came into this world to do and still be proud. Look at the way Mary says it in verse 49. She says, he who is mighty, not me, him, he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And then in verse 51, he has shown strength with his arm, not my arm, she says, it's his arm, so as to scatter the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. See, the birth of Jesus, that God actually had to become a human being. And suffer throughout life and die on a cross to save people like you and me. That ought to humble us. That ought to show us that the pride that stuck in, in our inmost heart. The pride that wants to make much of ourselves and lift ourselves up and promote ourselves and rely on ourselves. That pride ought to be brought down because I see something had to be done to rescue me and I couldn't do it. And so outside help had to come in. Not just any outside help, God himself had to come in to save me. My pride should be absolutely closed up. Now, why does Mary bring up pride? Because it's at the heart of what's wrong with me and you. I mean, a great definition of sin is right there in verse 51. A definition of sin there is those who are proud in the thoughts of their hearts. They're proud in the core of who they are. If you cut me open, what comes out is pride. What comes out is wanting to make much of myself and not make much of God. That's what sin is. It's not, hey, I follow all the rules, you don't. Gotcha. It's not sin. Sin is deeper than that. Sin it defines the very core of who we are, and it, it, it begins to infect every part of our lives. And at its essence, it's I want to be God. I want to replace God. You don't believe me? Go back to the first page of your Bible when the first human being sinned. What did they do? God had told them one thing, and they said, no, I want to do what I want to do. Right? God had given them one vision for the good life, and they said, no, I've got a better vision for the good life. God had said, I want you to rule the world, but under my rule, they said, no, we want to get you out of the way and rule the world all by ourselves, uncontested. That's where sin starts. That's where sin continues. The problems we have in the world, whether they're in our own families... Whether they're in our workplaces or schools or even in our nation politically or at wars going on around the world, they're rooted in human beings puffing out the chest and saying, I don't need God. I can be God. I can do his job. It's like the person at work. Maybe you've been this person who's always talking about how they could do the boss's job better. (laughs) Right? Maybe you've been that person. I've probably been there before. But the only difference is, with your boss at work, you may be better at the job, potentially, than that boss. You might be right. There's a chance. With God, there ain't no chance, right? We're always deeply delusional. That's why pride, it totally changes the way we view God, the way we view ourselves, the way we think about the world. It's like looking at binoculars backwards. Like my son used to do when he was real small. He would only look out of the big end. And it makes everything else, besides what's near you, it makes it seem so small and far away and unimportant. But everything that gets closer to me is bigger, more valuable, more important. That's what pride begins to do to our hearts. And it sends us on all these wild goose chases. If I think that I'm God, then I have to act like God in my life. I have to rule myself. I have to save myself. I have to make my life meaningful in my own way. That's exhausting. That's exhausting. And that also leads to the giant dead end of God's judgment, which is exactly what Mary goes on to say in verse 52 and following, because of my son's birth, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones. He has uh, exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He's helped his servant Israel as he spoke and promised to the fathers in remembrance of his mercy. Do you see that? Jesus' birth in this world brings a kingdom that reverses all of our values. We value those who have, those who insist on their own way. Everybody in the world values those people. Those are the people that get promotions. Those are the people who make it far. But in Jesus' kingdom, it's not those people. It's those who recognize their need, those who know they're poor, those who know they're hungry. So the prerequisite... The first thing you have to do if you're going to understand Jesus and the gospel and experience the good news is you have to admit you're wrong. You have to admit you're poor. You have to admit you're helpless. A couple of years ago, I went to Israel on a tour to see all the different sites that you read about in the Bible. And one of them I went to was in the city of Bethlehem where Jesus was born. And they had built a church called the Church of the Nativity over one of the sites that they think Jesus might have been born at. And I was really struck because to get into this beautiful church, giant church, there was only one door, and it was about this high. I mean, literally, it was that high, and it was about that wide. And we all kind of, like, stood at it, like, what do we do? You know, like, what angle do I take? I felt like Alice in Wonderland, you know, suddenly. And so we asked our tour guide, why that small door? And he said, it's because this church is dedicated to the story of Christmas. And we call that door the humble door. Because in order to experience the grace of God at Christmas, you have to stoop down and crawl to get to it. I never forgot it. I had to stoop down and crawl, and I went right in there. And when I got in there, it opened up to a beautiful church. But I couldn't get in if I bowed my back. If I said, there's no way I'm crawling, I'm a grown man. (laughs) I'm not getting down. Right? And spiritually speaking, isn't that what we do? There's no way I'm admitting my need. There's no way I'm going to say that I'm not a Christian. There's no way I'm going to say that I can't be good enough for God. And Jesus says, to enter my kingdom, the exalted come down, and only those who bring themselves down are exalted. Humility. There's a humble door, There should be a humble door, at least figuratively, in front of every church, including this one. In order to understand the riches of Jesus, you've got to humble yourself. And so, But the third thing, and this is the last thing today, is that once you go through the humble door, once God's grace does leave no room for your pride, then the door is open to a life of true joy. There's real joy possible. I mean, Mary herself is the one who modeled this. You know, we saw it at the beginning of the talk in verse 46 and 47. My soul makes much of God. It magnifies the Lord, and therefore my spirit has joy. I'm full of deep and lasting joy in God my Savior. In other words, what has to happen is a two-fold process. <laughs> when you see what God has done for you in the birth of Jesus, not only does it have to bring you down so that you crawl through the humble door, but it also has to bring you your eyes up to see the vast glory of God's grace for you. The mightiness of his grace, the costliness of his grace, so that you desire it and you want to spend your life making much of it. You have to know that God loves you more than you could have ever imagined in Jesus Christ so that it fills your heart with this desire to go after him and what he wants and what he says rather than to go after yourself. That has happened to Mary. Mary, it's it's as if she's been in the deepest valley in humility so that she can see just how high the mountains are, the mountains of God's grace. And you and I have to get down in, in our hearts down into that valley too. But when we do, what we have to do is embrace the mountain. We have to take hold of the grace of God, which alone can save us. It's the only thing that can rescue us. Uh, She says it this way in verse 47. I hope you noticed it. She says, I rejoice in God, my Savior. My Savior. Do you notice the personal nature of what she's saying? She has not left God at a distance. She has not let the story of this baby that God has brought into her womb and into this world stay at a distance. A story in a book somewhere She has embraced it, and she's made it her own. That's what faith does. It reaches out a hand to grasp, with empty hands to grasp what God alone can offer us. And so Mary says, God is my Savior. I've stopped trying to prove myself by my own efforts. I've stopped trying to save myself. I've stopped trying to pretend with a bowed back that I'm better than I really am. I've humbled myself, and I've received Christ my Savior. I know for me, That was one thing that helped me as I began to follow Jesus. I began to realize, wait a minute, I know he's a savior of the world. I know he's even the savior of the world. That he died on the cross to save sinners. I know that. Many of you would agree with that. But then I realized, but do I know he's my savior? Do I know that the suffering that he went through was for me because he loved me and that he wants to make a claim on my life? See, that's the doorway. That's the entryway into true and lasting real joy. Not joy that we seek by our own effort, but joy that floods into our life like a surprising treasure that we've stumbled over. Because if I if I think, if, if God is not my Savior, if Jesus is not my Savior, who is? I am. And my whole life is just this worried, anxious, fearful, maybe arrogant and proud search of making myself better than I am and pretending that I'm better than I am. And so some of you might relate to this. I see saw between I'm not good enough, my life stinks, self-pity, and oh I'm better than all those people. I see saw between despair and pride. I think God lo- doesn't love me one day, he loves me the next. That's what happens when I'm trying to be my savior. It's like having to go get the water you need every day with a leaky bucket from a lake a mile away. (laughs) Imagine that, having to wake up every day to go a mile to get that water out, and you've got to carry it, plugging the leaks all the way home, and you've got to go back and forth and back and forth. It's exhausting. But Jesus says this, Come unto me, and you will have springs of water coming out of your very heart, so that if he's my Savior, I no longer have to be. I know on the cross he did what it took to make me accepted with God forever. I know he did what it took to set me free from myself. He did what it took so that I never have to worry about being alone or abandoned because he's always with me, he's always in me. I can know that I never have to be afraid of anything because I share in the power of someone who rose from the dead and rules over all the universe. And so now I can be honest about who I am and secure at the same time I don't have to worry about that leaky bucket to the lake a mile away. Jesus has dug a spring right in my living room. He's dug a spring right in my living room, and every day the cool, refreshing, life-giving, pure water of his grace begins to, to warm my heart and refresh it and to cleanse it. So I believe even at this early stage, Mary, the mother of Jesus, it's one writer that I love said, she didn't just bear Jesus in her womb, she bore him in her heart. Even in this stage, you know, she understood the meaning of what Jesus would come into the world to do. And she embraced God's plan to save her by grace. And so with us. Now, the last thing I'll say, how do we know that we're people or a church that has that spring in the living room? How do we know we're a people who have God as our Savior rather than self as Savior? Well, I think Mary gives us another clue. Not only will we be people who make much of God and have joy in Him, but we'll also be a people who are willing to do anything He asks of us, even when it's hard. That's what joy does it sets the heart free. No longer do I have to worry about failing, no longer do I have to worry about what might happen if this turns out a way that I don't want. Instead, my heart is free, I'm secure in God. I'm worse than I thought that I was, for sure, but I'm far more loved than I could ever imagine. So I'm willing to do whatever God asks me to do. And so when the angel said, Mary, you're going to have a baby, she knew it was going to be costly. And yet she said, let it be to me as you have said. Let it be as you have planned. And so with us, is that what our hearts are saying? I mean, that right there really is the truth. You're going to call it Christmas spirit. That is, that's it. That's the spirit of God coming to change us, to make us into people who say, you know what? My life is all about you, God. What do you want me to do? And what we're going to hear him saying is, I want you to do exactly what my son did for you. I want you to go out and be willing to to give away the stuff that you have. Make yourself poor so that others might be enriched. If you think that sounds hard, you're right. (laughs) It's impossible. Unless you have a spring of water bursting up within you by the grace of God. And Jesus alone offers that to you and me, true and lasting joy. Amen? Let's pray together this morning. <clears throat> Father, we thank you that in your word there are treasures that we weren't searching for or seeking on our own. Uh, Lord, I, I for one didn't have the sense to seek for these things. and. Even when I heard about them, there have been many times that I've just kind of yawned and thought that they were not that important. And yet, Lord, you bring it to us in the most powerful way by your Spirit to show us this is treasure. This can really change our lives. And so I pray for each of us today that we would want to have our lives changed by Jesus. That we would want to have Jesus as my Savior the one who laid himself down for my sins, the one who opened the door so that I could come to God as my father, so that I would no longer be a slave, but would be a son or a daughter of the king. Lord, please let Christ be born in us today. Help us bear him in our hearts to love him and to make much of him. In Jesus' name, amen.